Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support, the fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly masterclasses with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the 2024 Australian Open. And in the we're going to be mostly focusing on the uh on on some of the themes, the some of the um themes, particularly on the mental side of the game, um, on the finalists, but also some other matches that that came up um and on both the men's and the women's side. And on the women's side, Arena Sabalenka beat um, beat Chinwen Zhang Zheng, um, and she beat her six three six two. And on the men's side, um, Yannick Sinner beat uh, beat Daniel Medvedev three six three six six four six four six three. Um, and quite a bit to talk about. I think there are definitely some themes on on both sides. And I think there are some overlapping themes. Um, and I think, yeah, I think maybe we could start with the, um, with the women's final and, you know, and maybe Sabalenka in particular and just her, I think maybe her dominance and and her growth, I would say just as a player, both, I think both physically and mentally, and maybe how that led her to, to, to really achieve the, the the dominance that she had in in this tournament, and I think besides her semifinal match against Coco Goff, she didn't lose more. She didn't lose a set throughout the tournament, including that match against Coco Goff. But she didn't lose more than three games in any set throughout the entire tournament, which is which is remarkable. Which is just a remarkable level of level of consistency of of performance. I would say. Um, so yeah, wanted to see maybe some of your thoughts that, that you've had on her, Brian. Well, I think especially given her playing style, Josh, which is a very aggressive style of play. Um, I thought some important things for her. Number one, I saw a lot of this on, on, on Instagram as well, is she was keeping things pretty fun and relaxed and loose off the court. I don't know if you saw the video of her like kicking like a water bottle off the top of her coach's head. So she's sort of doing like a roundabout kick. And and I think she talked about how keeping it loose and fun off the court was really important for her uh, to help her enjoy what's going on. And I think that's an important thing for all players to consider. We've We've talked about how enjoyment is such a key factor of being a great competitor. And, and looking at, at your tennis and making sure that you are enjoying what you're doing. Um, and so her emphasizing that more in the off-court type of thing, I think was fantastic and, and most likely helped her when coming onto the court. One of the things that we've talked about in the past with positive psychology is this is about positivity and this theory called the broaden and build theory, which is that more positive emotions help you to become more psychologically stronger out there. You can be more creative. You can see more options. Um, and so whether she's doing it for that reason or not, that's a byproduct of what's happening. So enjoyment, I think, is a really big thing. Um, I think she also noted the importance of trying to stay more in control when on the court, meaning not so many emotional reactions to circumstances or adversity. She's obviously not perfect here, but when contrasted with what happened 
in New York at the U.S. Open much better. And I think that that it helps you to be consistent in you know having sets that are six three or or less. Um, I think the other thing that was out there, Josh, for her was this was you know she's been trying to win this second title for you know a few tries here, and sometimes the second title is harder than the first. Who would have guessed that Dominic Team would not be in any conversation since the 2020 U.S. Open relative to winning a major? That would have been hard to think about. Um, and he's a totally different case. But Sabalenka now has that. And I think what, we, what I like about it, Josh, is that she really wanted to back up that first title, not to be a fluke, to, to make sure that she could prove to herself. And she wanted, I think, to do this for her father and her family. That uh, and you know, so winning that second title takes a lot of desire. It's not easy to do that. And I think the last thing I would say about her, Josh, um, she talked a lot about this in in her finals press conference. That it's just a process. Keep fighting, keep working hard, keep trying. What choice do you have as a professional player? It's not going to go great every day, but just keep doing those three things. And, and then you see what happens. And hopefully she keeps that going because now I think perhaps she's find, found a little bit of a formula. Nice and loose off the court, trying to remain a little bit calmer on the court and simply doing great work in training. Um, so those are some of my thoughts on her. I'm really impressed with how she's done this. Even last year, impressed that she was able to win the tournament the first time. And it's it's wonderful to see her back that up and and establish a little bit of dominance here. Absolutely, and, and especially after that, you know, after the U.S. Open, where she lost in a really you know tough three setter against Coco Golf, um, and she was frustrated. And I think a video came out of her in the locker room afterwards, like smashing a racket and just you know very frustrated. And uh, you know she she talked about how, you know, there's not going to be big wins without, you know, really tough losses and just being able to sort of move on after that loss, after a loss like that and, you know, learn from it and put it behind her. And yeah, I, I would also agree that she has, you know, seemed, I think, especially off court, a lot looser. I I, I know the, the video that, that you're referring to where she kicked the um, water bottle off of her coach's head. There's also another video that came out of her dancing with, I think, her and her her coaching team, and to sort of some of the people around her. So she's really seemed to to loosen up off court. I, I would say especially, but also on court, it, it, she just seems to have a different demeanor. Where I think, you know, I think everybody has a different style, right? Where some people are always going to be more just relaxed out there, and, and other people are going to be more intense out there. Um, and she, she's definitely more on the intense side of things. But what we're not seeing is the, these huge emotional swings ups, up and down that, that, that we have in the past. I think in, in past matches from her, you know, she would let out a lot more negative emotion, negative body language, sort of show her opponent, show the crowd, show everybody that just, just how frustrated and upset she was and i think that can you know that can take a toll on on the player but that can also take a toll you know that that, that can also have an, an impact on the opponent right when your opponent sees you like that that can that can certainly be a confidence boost so i think she's made a lot of strides in in those areas and i think it's been a yeah i think it's been a process for her she's talked about that a lot in her press conferences and i, th- I think she's at that point now where she's she's really put it all together and, um, you know, I think it was also interesting that um, Iga, Iga Sviantek lost earlier in the tournament. So that may have been a confidence boost as well. You know, that the only player seated above her, um, who's also, you know, beaten her a lot, has has lost. That that, you know, may, maybe in certain ways she saw that she had a real opportunity here, a real opportunity to to win the tournament and defend her title um, and also I, I think she probably has some personal motivation to try to, um, to try to beat Coco after that tough, you know, after that tough U S open final. Um, so yeah, very impressive from her. I think, you know, she, 
will definitely be um, one of the players to beat. I mean, I think on the women's side, they're sort of at the at the top of the game. A, a few, you know, be between her and Iga and Rabakina, and you know, we can certainly include you know Coco in that mix as sort of all you know. All four of them have been you know recent major winners. You know, certainly there are some others that we can add to that mix in terms of you know Kurchikova and um, Je- Jesse Pagula and, and different players. But I think yeah, she's definitely one of the going to be one of the top players to to beat and to watch for this season i think with with her being confident with her you know mentally and emotionally being i would say at a more a more even keel level um she's going to be she's going to be really tough going forward yeah i agree and um do we now have to add you know zhang Xinwen into some of the conversation she if you look at her trajectory over the last couple of years um pretty impressive what she's done. Very nice, kind of slow, good progress, good growth in her game. And um, maybe not the most challenging route to the final, but that's not her fault. She, she, You have to play who you have to play. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be nice to see what she can do after this, if she can turn getting to this final into something positive for the rest of her season. Um, I think based on that growth, I, I, I hope that she can continue on that path. It doesn't feel like she's going to be uh, a one-time or a flash-in-the-pan type of player. Um, you know, so I think for her, I like, I like the progress that she's um, been showing these last couple of years. And, you know, with respect to the final, I think it was it had more to do with Sabalenka than anything and and i think um you know zhang shenwen stated that it wasn't so much nerves that it was more she didn't play well but also sabalenka was part of the reason she didn't play well and so that's that's a tough final maybe to face for your first time but uh i really like the growth that that she showed in in, the, in this tournament and getting to the final and and i hope that really continues Totally, totally, and I, and I think with with Chin Wen Zhang, I think yeah, she she's she's been slowly um, climbing in terms of her ranking. Certainly, as as you mentioned, um, and yeah, had had some really impressive wins. I was actually at so I was at the Australian Open, which was which was awesome, which was something that I had been wanting to do for a long time. Um, and I was actually at her third round match, which was against um, Yifan Yifan Wang. And um, Jang won the first set, um, six four, but it felt, you know, felt relatively comfortable. But then Wang came back, won the second set, and then they played a very competitive tiebreaker. And Jang won ten eight. And I think this, you know, and this is a this is a third round match, right? And um, you know, she was so close to have so so close to to losing at that point, right? And uh, played such a competitive match, really put it all out there. And then after that, had some some more comfortable matches. After that, won her fourth round match, 6-0, Quarterfinal, again, was three sets, but then beat Yastrzemska, 6-4, 6-4 in the semifinal. And just really showed, you know, I, I from what I saw, really was, was very willing to go for her shot. Seemed to play pretty aggressively. She served pretty big. Um, then, you know, when she's facing against Sabalenka, it almost felt like, at least with the level that Sabalenka brought, just that she was at almost a, a different level that day. Um, and, and it was tough and Sabalenka was all over her sort of from the start and just put a, put a ton of pressure on her and, and it was tough. And also I think, you know, we can't discount it being somebody's first final, you know, I think your, your first major final for, for anybody is going to be, there's going to be some additional challenges there. Um, but, you know, I think all in all, she seemed to um, handle the moment, you know, the, the moment throughout the tournament, but also the final, even though she didn't play her best, um, seemed to handle things well. I know she's now top 10, um, which is which is obviously a, a really key milestone. Um, so, yeah, I, I think going forward, she'll definitely be, Definitely be a player to watch. Is she's definitely you know she's she's still quite young. Um, I think she's twenty two. Um, 
Yeah, no, tw- 21 actually. She's still only 21, so um certainly has her her career in front of her and uh yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what she can conti- continue to do. Can she use a moment like this as sort of a springboard, as a springboard for the rest of the season and and going forward. You know, I think we see we often will see a big milestone like this, like a first major final as sort of that that springboard that that launches a player to you know, sort of the the consistency of results that maybe we've seen with a Sabalenka these last couple of years and an Iga these last few years, um, where sometimes it takes that first, you know, that that first result where you've gotten to the, the the top of the game, where then that leads to a certain level of confidence and self belief moving forward. Um, but yeah, great great tournament from her, and she definitely deserves a lot of credit. Agreed, and I think also on the women's side we saw. Several teenagers, several young players make some inroads here. Um, and so it, it feels like the depth and the future of the women's tour is really in good hands, at least from my perspective. I, I like that we've, we've got a lot of different people making some inroads in these tournaments and, and, and causing problems for some of the top players. You know, Sviantek losing to a teenager, Mira Andreva. Coming back and, and and playing some really great matches um, at 16, so I think that that just makes everything a little bit more interesting, a little bit spicier for us as a fan, and um, and just to see how these players handle these moments. And so I think it could be a really exciting year um, as we move into you know the spring uh, with the U.S. hard court piece, and then into the into the clay court season. Totally. And and one interesting thing, and I don't know if you if you saw this um regarding Mira Andriva, um, but Andy Murray actually had an interesting tweet about her where I guess one of the commentators so she was down um in one of one of her matches, she was down five one in the third set, but then came back and won the the third set, you know, what once they get to six all, they play the super tiebreaker to ten. Um so she came back and she won it. And Murray commented that the um that the commentator from the match had noted something about her mental game that she she's really hard on herself that she needs to work on that when she was down 5-1 in the third set but then he mentioned that you know that that 30 minutes later she had won it she had won the set 7-6 so what Murray had said which I thought was was interesting um was you know maybe maybe the re- and this is a quote maybe the reason she turned the match around is because of her mental strength. Maybe she turned the match around because she's hardened herself and demands more of herself when she's losing or playing badly. Winner. So again, there's different styles. And, you know, Andy Murray, I think, is also a player who has been criticized for um, well, I think criticized and applauded, probably for in, in two different ways about his mental game that I think emotionally he can show he can certainly show negative emotion and frustration and you know has has broken rackets and things things of that nature, but also has been very tough mentally and has had a lot of has had quite a few comebacks, has been a really tough player to close out matches against. Um so I think maybe Murray saw a side of himself with that criticism against her and, and was saying that, you know, just because she is hard on herself doesn't mean she's not mentally strong. And I think that to me, that's a theme to me that that's even a theme of this tournament. And in general that, you know, players have different styles, you know, there are going to be the players that are going to be more stoic and more put together always and have less ups and downs. And, and that's going to work for them. And I think, you know, we can think about a Roger Federer as an example of that. And then we can think about the Murray style where there are more ups and downs. There is more frustration that's shown. Um, you know, I would, I would add in, you know, I would add in Djokovic to that camp. I would add in Serena to that camp where they, they're, they do show frustration. They do, you know, they, the, when, when things aren't going well, they are hard on themselves because they have high standards for themselves. They have high standards. And sometimes that I think can lead to them turning things around. So I think it can, it can work for them or work against them. But I thought it was really interesting, you know, especially speaking of some of the teenagers on the women's side, um, 
that you know that that Andreeva in particular that um that that Murray made this comment about her and and I know Andreeva said that she was going to frame that tweet mm-hmm. that she was going to frame that tweet on her wall um but no I, I thought that was interesting I, I did, did did you have any thoughts of that particular uh, situation yeah I mean I think as we were saying before we began recording that this is uh this is a tricky topic yes everybody's different but you could still look at all those players that you mentioned. And I bet if we were to catalog the matches in which they acted worse than they normally do, they probably lost most of those matches. It's, can it work? Yeah. If you can turn some of that frustration and anger into right action. But if it snowballs and accumulates into more self-criticism and more just sort of plain anger, it won't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a little bit tricky making that right transition. Um, and I'm, you know, I have felt it as a player too. There have been times where I've kind of lost my mind and all right, now I clicked, I'm in the zone. But when I'm like in the zone, I'm not acting badly. If we look at all those players you named Murray, Djokovic, Serena, in the matches that they have played their best, they have not acted that way. And so I get what he's saying, and I bet it is partially true with Andreva. She probably does have high standards, and maybe she was able to kick it in, like, come on, let's do this sort of thing. And and she channeled it into, like, all right, let's just play some clean tennis. Let's make her work hard. That, to me, is really the value here. Forget about how she did it. And this is something that Medvedev does when we get to talk about him. When you're losing, your mission is to keep your opponent on the court as long as you can. And she did that. Um, Medvedev did that several times. And, and really against, you know, Alexander Zverev, that was the mission. I'm down two sets to love. I have to keep this guy out here. I have to give him a chance to choke. Because everybody knows that is, that's a legitimate thing that could happen. Um, and so how you find your way to having to extend the match, that may be the more personal thing. Um, some frustration anger might work for you, but I really feel strongly that engaging with that as a regular technique and tool to play better is dangerous. I think we mm-hmm. see that it, it fails way more often than it succeeds. And I don't think Arena Sabalenka would be talking about the importance of staying calm if she felt that the other stuff was a better route to matches. She learned the hard way, like we all do, that doing that doesn't, doesn't necessarily work. Yeah, we're all different. And maybe her, her level of negativity might have been way higher at certain points. Um, but I also don't want to project out here like, oh, yeah, you should let your frustrations out. It will help you play better. I don't believe that that's in general true. And we did that you know, episode on, on does venting anger work? And really the conclusion was no. So can we also look at opening up your mind to trying a different way, trying to be calm, knowing it's not easy, um, and seeing how that goes? So... But I did think it was kind of really cute interplay between Murray and Andreeva. You know, I think there's, a, um, there's some good chemistry there. And then it be interesting to see how that, that blossoms at future tournaments. Absolutely. No, and I, I would say I fully agree that, um, yeah, the matches where we can think about each of them it, it, from a sort of – a emotional or, or behavioral perspective when when they're at their best compared to maybe not at their best um i would say yeah when they're playing at their best we 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 haven't seen that it's it's those matches where they're not at their best and that's when that comes out and i i would agree that in general i don't think it helps them i think sometimes it's almost like a a chicken or the egg type situation where it's like okay well i i came back and i won this match when i was frustrated and letting out the anger and that that must mean that that led to that fight that I was able to show. But I think oftentimes it's no, you, you have that fight in you, you have that, that ability to turn a match around 
And, you know, earlier in the match, you, you weren't showing it. You, you were, you know, you were, um, maybe mentally not at the level that you wanted to be. So I think it's, you know, sometimes we, I think players, maybe, maybe like Murray in this situation, sort of look back and attribute some of those wins to, you know, fighting despite the negative emotions where I think, yeah, I, I, I would agree that, um, and, and again, we did a recent episode on this that people can listen to that the venting doesn't, doesn't help. And, and there's a lot of research here that, that shows this, but, um, that, you know, when, when, cause everyone's going to experience frustration, everyone's going to get, you know, everyone's going to feel upset when maybe things aren't going so well, but it's what we do about it. It's, you know, do we decide to yell at ourselves? Do we decide to throw a racket? Do we decide to, or do we decide to go about it a different way? You know, can we use our routine to slow things down, to reset, to recognize what happened in that last point, but then reset and you know, and, and really try to have a game plan for the next one. Um, you know, can we use our self-talk? Can we use our breathing? Can we use some of these different tools that we have to manage the frustration of not playing our best? Because it's going to happen. It's It happens to the top players in the world. It happens to junior players. It happens to adult league players. It happens to everybody. So can we use the tools that we that we have and are, have built or are continuing to build to to manage that situation and i yeah i i i it does sometimes feel and i think going back to sabalenka i think she's probably had moments like this as well and i think sometimes players can maybe justify their actions especially if they win and say oh well i i still managed to win yeah rationalize and it right rationalize exactly so i th- i i think yeah I, I think it's definitely something we want to maybe be careful of of not not doing too much yeah. So how about we get into the the men's side, um, you know, more specifically the final. Um, I think some really good themes coming out of that final, Josh, and um, you know, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about it first. Yeah. Um, so quite a few. I mean, uh, Medvedev came out really hot in the beginning of the match. Very um, aggressive. Extremely aggressive, which, you know, for anyone who's familiar with his game, he certainly can be quite aggressive. You know, he's a huge serve. He he certainly has the tools on the forehand and backhand side to be very aggressive, but he doesn't always necessarily play so aggressively. He often steps back behind the baseline. He doesn't always, you know, play as aggressively. He's he could be very consistent and he often will sort of counterpunch and wait for his opponent to make that first move. Um, but that's not what we saw in the beginning of this match. And really those first two sets, he was came out super, super aggressively um, from, you know, with, with his ground strokes in particular. And I think it sort of caught center off guard. And, and Medvedev talked about this after the match and that he had played quite a bit of tennis. Center had only lost one set leading up to the final. Um, and he lost that set against Djokovic in the semifinals, um, where Medvedev had played, I think, going into the final, had played three five-setters, had played some four setters. Um, when all was said and done after the five set final, had played 31 sets out of a possible total 35 that he could have played and was on court for over 24 hours, which set a record for, for any player um, in, in history uh, in, in one tournament. So, um, yeah, I think Medvedev recognized that physically he needed to do something different, that if they were going to be in the long rallies throughout the match, that that was going to benefit center because he was a lot fresher physically. So came out extremely aggressive and it worked. It worked for him. He won those first two sets relatively comfortably. I think also Sinner was not at his best. Um, I, 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 you know, we can speculate as to why maybe it was a letdown after the Djokovic win, which was obviously a huge win for him. Um, maybe he was just caught off guard by, um, by, by Medvedev's play. He seemed to be a little bit flat, um, but yeah, after those first two sets and sort of midway through that third set, um, midway through or even towards the end of that third set, uh, Sinner started to to turn things around and managed to break break Medvedev towards the end of that third set. And then again in, in the fourth and fifth and really I think did a great job, especially towards the end of the match, of of holding his nerve, right? This was his first his first major final. Um has certainly been 
a player that's been sort of on fire these past few months has now beaten Djokovic three times in a row. I think has beaten Medvedev. Sorry, not three times in a row. Has beaten Djokovic three out of the last four times that they've played. Um, and I think has beaten Medvedev a few times, I think three or three or four times in a row now as well, um, including in some finals um, and has really been, you know, uh, has really been playing his best tennis. So I think there's a lot of themes with Sinner and Medvedev. I think one, one theme in particular that, that came up a lot in Medvedev's press conferences, especially in his last couple of matches um, was this idea of wanting to be proud of himself. And he talked about, in Medvedev's semifinal match against Zverev, where he came back from being down two sets to love. He also came back from um, a match point against him that, you know, whatever happened in the match, he, he told himself, whatever happened here, I, whatever happens, I want to leave the court feeling proud of myself, right? I want to be able to be proud of, of how I, you know, of my effort, of my, of how I tried out there, of, of everything. And to me, that's a very process-oriented perspective, right? It, it would be very easy for Medvedev to go in and say, okay, I'm ranked higher than Zverev. I should be beating him. I'm supposed to beat him. I've beaten him in recent matches. You know, I, I need to win. And I think probably most players have had thoughts similar to that. Have You know, I, I, I hear this often from players, and I know this is something we've talked about quite a bit, Brian, um, but yeah, people will will often frame things as I need to win, I'm supposed to, I should, and put these expectations and, and put this pressure on themselves about their performances. Where instead, if we can keep our focus more on, you know, on something more process related, like like being proud of myself, right? And what and then what do we need to do to be proud of ourselves? Well, we need to give our best effort. We need to have a good attitude. We need to you know, really try to move our feet. We need to have good shot selection and decision-making. You know, all of these ultimately controllable factors. And I think, I, I like that he brought that up. And I think, you know, Medvedev has also had a an interesting transformation, interesting sort of um, journey these past few years where he, you know, he he won his first, his, his first and only major title in 2020. He's also had some, some tough, finals, you know, final loss, Grand Slam final losses against Djokovic and Nadal. Um, and actually, you know, his, his ranking dropped quite a bit um, and then has really gotten it back. And I think last year was was an important year for him in terms of sort of getting his game back, getting his level back. And I, I think just based on even the way that he's talking now, I think has has had a certain mature, you know, maturation as, as well, where he's trying to really do his best, you know, feel proud of himself. I think the clay season last year in particular was was really interesting for because I think going into last year he had really had had not had much success on clay and then last year seemed to really embrace clay in a completely different way and actually won a masters title on the surface and it just seems like I know yeah it seems like in general he has he is maybe seeing things in a, in a different way and, and seems to have really matured and, and seems to, um, I, I know he, he ultimately lost the final and I think maybe in certain ways ran out of steam. And some of the stats showed that just in terms of his average miles per hour on the forehand and backhand side in the first and second set and sort of comparing that to the later sets. Um, and I think he's tried to stay really aggressive, but physically maybe hit a wall in a certain way. But I think for Medvedev, and, and we can certainly talk about center, there's a lot to say there, but I think for Medvedev, um, yeah, really impressive just how he, um, how he sort of fought throughout this whole tournament, had to win, you know, multiple five setters and just sort of the maturity level that, that he's gotten to. Yeah, I agree. And I think he noted that in his finals press conference that he's not the same guy he was a couple of years ago who lost to Nadal and was very disappointed in you know, maybe went to a bit of a dark place after that, that, you know, I think he's much more optimistic and positive about where he is. I think he's an extremely likable player. I think he's really personable. His interviews are great. Um, I think he's very human about what's going on. Um, he's a tough guy to finish. When we talk about extending matches, he has the perfect game for that. And there were, you know, he came back from two sets of love twice. You know, he had Rusevori had him down. 
two sets. Verev had him down two sets. And the guy is difficult to finish off. And so, again, the value of keeping your opponent on on the court. Um, yeah, I think in that fifth set, probably a little bit too tired. I think, you know, the miles per hour thing is interesting because I think, like, in all matches, it's about two players. Um, to me, Sinner started to play better at the end of the second when he was down 5-1. So he, you know, he held an important hold. He broke. He held again. He actually had break point uh, to get the match back on serve. He couldn't couldn't do it. Um, but to me, that was the moment where the mile per hour thing started to change. I think part of the mile per hour thing was that perhaps Sinner was a little tight in this first final. Similar to when he played Djokovic in the ATP Tour final. I thought actually Sinner played quite poorly in that match. Of course, it's difficult to beat Novak twice in the span of a few days. And that may have weighed on him. It was also in Italy. And and uh, so that match wasn't all about Djokovic playing great. A lot of that match was about, you know, Sinner a little bit off. And I think he started the this final off. But the beauty is you have three out of five sets. Because yeah, if we didn't, the, the match would have been right done. It would have been a straight set win for Medvedev. Um, so in three out of five, you have an opportunity to to work your way back into it. But I like how Medvedev really had an aggressive game plan to begin that. And he noted part of that was based on condi- you know how he felt. He, he needed to do something a little bit different. Darren Cahill noted they fully expected Med- Medvedev to be aggressive coming out. So there were no secrets there. Um, but I really like how Daniil is, is, is talking, Josh. You're mentioning the, the maturity piece. I think he's got a strong support system, something we've mentioned a lot that's important for the mental health of these, these players. Um, and I think he, he continues to learn. He continues to follow the process. And if he can continue to mature, as we've seen him these last couple of years, I mean, he's 27, but given that a lot of players are finding a good level in their 30s, there's no reason to think that he's um, he can't get better at this. So I, I really like what Medvedev did in this tournament. Obviously, if he could go back, and it would be great not to go down two sets in two matches and, and have to expend that energy. A lot of times winning a tournament is path of least resistance, I think. Going into the final, Medvedev maybe was on the court like 20-something hours, 20 hours, a little bit more, and, and Sinner was like 14. It's a big difference. And, and in the end, Medvedev <clears throat> noted that in the fifth set, Sinner was the only guy he faced in a five-set match who didn't seem to be tiring. The other guys were. I mean, yeah, I beat Rusevori 6-0. In the fifth, and and he noted some, you know, that Zverev was getting tired. So um, I, I I would love to see Medvedev keep it up, keep keep doing what he's doing, and uh, because he causes so many problems the way he plays, and it's just so fun to watch. It's true. It's true. No, I think he, I mean, he he has so many tools, right? He has obviously one one of the biggest serves. He offensively and defensively has just so many weapons, you know, from, from the baseline. Um, yeah. His, his volleys are unorthodox as other parts of his games are, if his game are including his forehand, but can be quite effective. I, I can think about certain, um, yeah, certain points where he got up there. I, I actually thinking back to a point against Hercotch in the quarterfinals where it was sort of a volley to volley exchange and Medvedev had some unorthodox sort of like long drawn out volleys that sort of that, a you know, a, a coach, a coach at, at a tennis club or park would, would tell any, any player to, to shorten up, but you know, Medvedev being one of the top players in the world, he, he made it work and won that point at the net. And I think just, yeah, has the type of game where he can, yeah, he can can really win any match with with sort of the tools that he has, and I think you know, like like what we talked about with Sabalenka, I think has has gotten to a point of 
you know, further maturity. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, has been through a lot these past couple of years in terms of sort of getting to the top of the game, you know, reaching number one, of course, and then letting his ranking drop. I think he, I know he was down to like number 12 at one point. Um, and now back to, you know, top one of the top few players in the world is, is at number three. And um, yeah, I, I think is the type of player. And I think we're also seeing a little bit less, less in terms of the antics from him. I mean, we can think back to maybe, you know, situations where he was at, you know, his US, the US Open and sort of picking fights with the crowd. And, you know, certainly by the end of it, he had had, you know, a good amount of the crowd on his side, but seemed to be a lot of his focus was on sort of some of these these antics and those sorts of things. And now it seems to be more about his game and trying to, to be proud of himself, which I, I think is a great, you know, a, a great message for, for everybody really um, in terms of, you know, how can we try to go about things and play whether we're, you know, whether we win or lose, whether we play our best or we don't play our best so that we're ultimately proud of ourselves so that we feel like we've done everything that we can do everything within our control um, that we, we feel like we've left it all on the table and that ultimately we can be proud of ourselves. So I think that's a definitely an important message. Um, but I think, yeah, I think we should definitely talk about Sinner. I think also on the men's side, um, some of the players that didn't make the final that maybe we would have expected to, or at least expected to have a good chance, such as Alcaraz and Djokovic. We can also talk about them a little bit. Um, and because I think there's, there's certainly something to say about each of them. But um, yeah, I think when it comes to Sinner, you know, he is certainly a player that people have had their eye on for a while in terms of being a major winner. I think, you know, there in Italy there hadn't been a you know a, a major winner for for many years um, on on the men's side, um, and you know I, I think he had had certain pressure on him growing up. You know, I think people had talked about him as being you know a potential next star. Um, and yeah, has really seemed to put it together in recent months. Um, and I, I think the, the results have, you know, speaking for themselves, um, also had, you know, we talked about, he beat Djokovic twice towards the end of uh, 2023. He also won, you know, him and, and Italy won the, uh, the Davis cup, um, which I know have for other players has been sort of a nice, um, milestone that that's actually sort of been a springboard as well. I know for Djokovic, I think Serbia won the 2010, um, the, the 2010 Davis cup. And then he had Djokovic had 2011, which was one of his best years ever, which, you know, was, um, yeah, I think he'd won the 2008 Australian open, but then in 2011, he went on this extremely long winning streak, I think up until maybe the clay season and, um, you know, I, I think sometimes it's a win like that where you're you're not just representing yourself, you're representing something a little bit bigger, like your country. Um, and yeah, you know, center being able to center being able to sort of lead the way and win that where he beat Djokovic both in singles and doubles in in that um, Davis Cup final. Um, it was actually a semifinal before they beat Australia, but beat Djokovic, you know, again right he had beaten him in the atp um tour finals and then beat him again in singles and then doubles um in a you know relatively short amount of time i think that can also be a you know big confidence boost and i think yeah being able to go through the tournament the way that he did you know without dropping a set until the semifinals then beating djokovic in that semifinal match um really playing great tennis and then you know in the final definitely came out slow um, I think Medvedev caught him off guard, but just the fact that he was able to slowly but surely turn that match around was was really impressive. And it seems like his perspective on pressure is really very positive. He mentioned looking at pressure as a positive thing. He used the Billie Jean King quote of pressure as a privilege um, because it's a privilege to be there. It's a privilege to be in pressure situations. It's a sign of how good a player you are. And he's certainly the most on the men's side, the most informed player over the last several months. So not really a surprise that he would make the final, maybe, well, certainly at least get to the semis and play Djokovic. Perhaps having played Djokovic so much in recent months was helpful 
to feel some familiarity, to feel some confidence there if he hadn't had that experience. But does he beat Djokovic? Who knows? Who knows? Novak, you know, obviously didn't have his best day, but that could have also been Sinner. All these things are, you know, an interplay there. Um, I think the thing I like about Sinner, if we look at it more from a match management perspective and his own emotional management, that he does a very good job of, of staying calm and generally staying positive. There can be some little things of maybe confusion or what's going on, but it's really well contained. And he can come back and have a great point and automatically see that that fist looking at the box. Um, and even in the second set, when he's down a break, but he gets the break back, right? He goes right to his box and he's got this. And that's clearly something that they, they have talked a lot about, how he can keep that positive thing going. To me, that's super important, Josh, because you're never out of it. There's never a 0% chance you're going to uh, win this match when playing you know, at this level. So there's no value, as, as Rafa once said in, in, a, in a press conference, there's no value in showing negative body language. So why do it? Um, we want to make sure that like in our own mind, we're a, we're a house united, not a house divided. So we want to make sure we know that. And I think he does a really good job of that. And, and his team is very good. So that, that's an important, again, the, the performance team, the trust in, in that. He t- also talked about when he was down, looking to just extend the match and make it longer. He knew Medvedev had been on the court a long time. Let's keep him out there a little bit longer. Let's see what happens. And that, that, that worked in his favor. So I think once he started to hit a little bit more freely at the end of that second set, you could start to slowly see him creeping his way back in. And that's, I think, where the mile per hour thing changed. When Sinner's not hitting the ball as cleanly, it allows the opponent to have a better ball to strike. Therefore, you can generate more power. But if Sinner is hitting the ball cleanly and at a higher mile per hour piece, now you're reacting. Now you're a little bit less able to attack it. So to me, the shift in, in the miles per hour on the ground strokes was not so much one player or the other. I think it was, the, again, the combination. Medvedev being a little aggressive, throwing Sinner off, not playing as well. Sinner starting to feel more comfortable. His ball starts to have a little bit more weight. Naturally, Medvedev may not be able to attack it in the same way. So it, it, definitely an interesting way to look at look at the match. Um, so this is his first. And naturally, the, the challenge will be can you repeat? Because as we said earlier, that can be the hardest thing here is, is winning that second one, not being satisfied with just one. And I don't feel like that that's going to be an issue for Yannick Sinner. I think he seems to have the same kind of mentality toward um, major titles as, as Medvedev does, as Djokovic, as Nadal, as Federer, that it's not about winning one. It's about me seeing how good I can be. And maybe that's, who knows what that number is for Yannick Sinner. Um, but I, I, I love his game. He also is a great, seems like a great young man. And um, someone that is, again, easy to root for. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, Italians are feeling really good about where their, you know, tennis is in, in, in the country. They've got some excellent men's players. They've had excellent women's players for quite a while. Maybe there's a little bit of a, a lull there now, but I'm sure that will will come back. And uh, it, it's really great to see the country producing such high-level talent. I mean, that Davis Cup winning team, Balotelli wasn't even playing. He was there supporting, but he wasn't even playing. Um, and so that's a deep, deep team. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, yeah, both from a from a team perspective, but yeah, definitely from definitely in terms of center, um, he yeah, absolutely has a lot of potential going forward. And I think, you know, he he has managed to to, as you said, manage to stay very even keel, managed to not have maybe the same highs and lows of other players. Um, and yeah, really seems to 
to keep it together. And, and you can hear him. I mean, even after he won the title, you know, he it wasn't like, like of course, he had his celebration. But hearing him talk about it after the fact, he's very put together, very calm, very composed, cho- you know, chooses his words carefully. Um, and yeah, definitely the type of guy who you could see having a, you know, having a a really impressive run in the sport, right? You know, the type of guy that could continue making these finals and winning these finals because he he has all the tools, I think, mentally and physically. You know, he's always been a, a guy that's been a big hitter from the baseline. I actually even um, Djokovic talked about, I think, hitting with him when Sinner was 14 and just sort of recognizing just the how clean he hit the ball and how much pace he could generate for that age. And I think we've we've seen, you know, that, that he can really hit a big ball, but I think it's, it's taken him some time to, to put it all together, to be as solid um, and consistent from the baseline. Like I can think back to a, a match he had earlier in the tournament where he played Andre Rublev, who's obviously a very big hitter, um, you know, really crushes the ball. And he was just hanging with him. He was hitting as, as hard as Rublev. And I think matched him or just about matched him in terms of winners throughout the match, but had half as many or just a, a roughly half as many um, unforced errors in the match. And I think it just shows more of a, from a strategic perspective that, you know, he's gotten to the point where he can hang with the biggest hitters on tour, but he can do that in a more uh, composed and consistent way. And yeah, I think that's yeah, definitely a, definitely a recipe for success. Um, I think, and I don't know how much we need to dive too much into this, but I think it is important to to talk a little bit about Alcaraz and Djokovic because I think we saw something from both of them that we don't normally see. I mean, I think from from Alcaraz, the the first in, in his quarterfinal match against Zverev, where he lost, um, his first two and a half sets or so was was really something I hadn't seen from him before. I think he was he was just off. He was, you know, he was he plays in a certain way where he almost he makes low percentage tennis work oftentimes where he plays in a pretty aggressive flashy way that where if things are going well, you know, he 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 hits some of the the best highlight reel shots you'll ever see. And he he can beat, you know, he can certainly beat anybody in the world when he's playing his best. But in that quarterfinal match, it felt like he almost didn't have a plan B in a certain way where his game wasn't working. He wasn't at his best. Zverev was also playing unbelievably, right? Zverev, I think, throughout that match served 85, you know, made 85% of his first serves which is especially at that level, just an incredible stat that, that you really don't see people putting up that, that sort of a percentage. Um, but, but I think Alcaraz was, was just off. He was, you know, making way too many errors from the baseline. He wasn't, didn't seem to have his normal sorts of energy or um, flair that he that he normally does, and he just didn't necessarily seem to have a way to adjust. Now things shifted, and in that second set, he he did. Sorry, in the third set, he did seem to turn things around and went from being down, I think, five two in that third set to ultimately getting to a tiebreaker, winning the third set, and then ultimately lost in a competitive fourth set. But um, yeah, you know, he dug himself into to quite a hole those first two and a half sets um, and just didn't necessarily seem to have a way to respond or adjust or turn things around. I mean, he, again, he, he did manage to mount some sort of a comeback that didn't, he didn't end up winning the match, but you know, the, the amount of times that anybody's going to win when they go down two sets and five, two is, is it's going to be, yeah, your, your odds are obviously slim at that point. Um, but yeah, Brian, I wanted to see if you had any, if you, if you saw some of that or if you had any thoughts on, on that match. Well, I think one of the key things you said was that he tends to play a lot of low percentage tennis. And so the decision-making is not as disciplined as it could be. And now that he's been uh, playing on the tour for the last couple of years, everybody knows what he's going to do a lot of the times. So it becomes harder 
to get away with some of these low percentage shots because people are reading it more. I think that's why he misses more drop shots than he did, say, a year and a half, two years ago. Because now guys are creeping in as soon as they see his, you know, his racket go high. And it may, so then now he feels more forced. Like, I got to make it even more perfect and more perfect. He makes more errors now on his drop shots than he used to. And that was a problem in that match against Verev. He, you could really break that match down into a few different poor choices that he made that lost him that match. And I think until he cleans that up, because if he, if he had the discipline of a Djokovic, he would be practically unbeatable. Because physically, he's probably the strongest and the fastest player out there. He's really good off of both sides. He can do almost anything. And maybe that's the curse, is that he can do almost anything. But can he rein it in to a style of play that he enjoys, of course, but is also better, better choices? Because right now he's beating himself. More so, I think, than other players are beating him. I have other players beat him for sure. Um... But, you know, this Vera's map, which was winnable. Granted, Alexander Zverev is a very difficult opponent. When he's on, he can beat anybody. And I don't think when you see him on your side of the draw that you're, all, you're particularly happy about that. Given the serve, given what he can do off the ground, he can play some serious high-level tennis. And so he is, he is difficult to play, and I, I don't want to minimize that. But... I think the issue with Alcaraz, and this has been the issue for the last year or so or more, is that he is trying to play too flashy of a game, and he needs to figure out how he can be more disciplined. And I think if he makes better choices and better decisions, he makes himself automatically harder to beat, and he's not beating himself. Totally. And I think what's what's important with somebody like that is, you know, he has the tools. He has the tools. He has the gifts. But it's just he needs to best figure out how and when to use them, right? Sometimes it feels like he relies too much on that flash and that pizzazz. And, and you know, again, he often makes it work. And there's a reason why he's, you know, at, at age 20, why he's been number one and why he's won two, grams all, two grand slams already, right? So, you know, we, we, we're not trying to take anything away from him or – you know, or anything like that. But I think what, what, what we often see is, you know, he relies on that drop shot or he relies on that absolutely massive, you know, winner that, that hits the line or is, you know, just inside the line um, or, you know, certain, certain shots that maybe, you know, in hindsight, maybe he shouldn't have gone for that. Sometimes he can make them when, when everything's firing, when everything's going well, but that they're not always going to to work for him. And yeah, so I think, you know, finding ways to be a little bit more disciplined would definitely be definitely be beneficial for him. And then within that sort of structure of discipline, then you can find the ways to add in those those pieces of the game that makes him who who he is. So I don't think, you know, we're not trying to say that he needs to start playing like everybody else or or just hit you know, cross stop. court. Or just hit cross court or anything like that. Like he, yeah. he's the type of player that that should be aggressive and should go for his shots. But I, th- I think there's a way to do that in a within sort of a more of a discipline framework where those shots, you know, where, where for instance the drop shot, the drop shot is is a surprise becomes more of a surprise if it's used less, Correct. right? Sometimes I, I find when he gets in trouble, he relies on shots like that too much where they've become predictable and then they're less effective where I think he can use his tools and his, you know, those, those very impressive tools, but use them in those right moments where they'll be as effective as possible. Agreed. I know you wanted to say something about Djokovic. I will just say something very short about him. Um, He indicated that, you know, this is not the beginning of the end and I completely believe him. Uh, this is a guy who's very motivated, very driven. Uh, I think he's going to use this loss to Sinner as 
as a, a driving force for the rest of the year. And um, I think we should take him at his word. I think he will absolutely be back and will be playing high-level tennis. And it's not the first time we've seen his level dip. I mean, there have been a few times at Roland Garros where he played Rafa. He didn't look that good in some of those 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 matches, but he's always come back. And I don't think there's any reason if you're a Novak Djokovic fan to be worried about that. And I think that that's always been one of the great things about Novak is his his motivation and drive to be the best that he can be, to be the best ever is is there. And I, I think he will absolutely rise to this challenge. I, I would agree. And I, I actually think back to the Wimbledon final, where after the Wimbledon final, you know, I think a lot of people were saying, okay, this is that turning point and Alcaraz is going to now overtake Djokovic. And really what we saw for the second half of last year was was quite the opposite, where Djokovic, you know, won the US Open, he won the the year-end championship, the year-end finals, and um yeah, and, and was the dominant player of you know of of the second half of the year. So he he really took that loss in stride, seemed to learn from it, and yeah, brought out a a great level of tennis after that. So I definitely don't think it's the beginning of the end either. I mean again, he's 36, but I think physically, you know, he he seems to sort of defy that that age quite a bit. Um, I know he does. He takes his body and his you know his fitness and all of that extremely seriously, um, both in terms of his diet and in terms of you know he does a lot of mental training. He does a lot of on the physical side in terms of yoga and different types of things. And I know he's talked about looking up to people like Tom Brady. Um, and, and others who, you know, have played, I know he talked about Brady in particular, who played into their forties and played at a high level up to that point. And I know that's, that seems to be something that inspires him and motivates him to continue to play, you know, at, at a really high level for as long as he can. Um, and yeah, I think in that semifinal match, you know, he came out rather flat in those first couple sets. He, he wasn't at his best, you know, he, um, yeah, came out more on the flat side. I think in the third set, it was impressive that he managed to win it. Um, I think center also got a little tight in that third set um, as sort of the finish line was in sight, so to speak. Um, but um, yeah, you know, didn't have it that day. And that's going to happen to everybody. You know, I think, and I was talking, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, but all the, all four of the, on the men's side, the, the top, the, you know, top four ranked players, um, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Sinner, all had a match where they went down two sets to love, right? Um, Alcaraz, it was that quarterfinal match to Zverev. Um, Djokovic, it was this semifinal match that we're talking about. Um, Medvedev, it was it was actually two of his, two of his uh, matches um, against Rusevori and against Zverev. And then um, and then Sinner was, was in the final. But, you know, all of those... Players had matches where they went down two sets to love. And I think that, you know, I, I think that that's an important point too, that, you know, everybody has off days. Everybody's human, including somebody like Djokovic, who's, you know, maybe especially in, yeah, in recent years, really over the last, I don't know, 12, 13 years has, has sort of been maybe more superhuman than most and has had, has done things and achieved things that, you know, people didn't necessarily think were possible, uh, but everybody's human. Everyone has days like that. And I think for, you know, for people that are listening, junior players, club players, college players, regardless, um, you know, I think it's very easy to build up certain players in our head. And I think we can all think about players that we face and we think, Oh, this person is unbeatable or I can't, beat this person or they're so much better and just recognizing they're they're human too they have great days and not so great days they'll, they'll have bad days um you know they they have highs and lows and emotional ups and downs and you know if if that happens to Djokovic that that will happen to you know th that will happen to people that that you face so I think there's yeah I think there's a lot of takeaways there I, I definitely don't think that it's the beginning of the end for him. I, I can definitely see him, you know, continuing to, you know, to be at the top of the game and to win majors. 
Um, but yeah, wasn't wasn't his day, and he fought, and, it, and honestly, wasn't his best tournament. I think throughout the tournament, he had to fight a lot more in some of the earlier round matches than he's used to, certainly. And um, yeah, but I think some of that caught up to him and just didn't have his best stuff on that particular day. Seemed to really continue to fight, but just didn't have his stuff. But credit to Sinner to, you know, to to managing to to win that match still and bring out his best tennis and then winning the final. So those are some of my thoughts there and maybe some of my final thoughts. Um, yeah, any other thoughts on Djokovic or any other thoughts that, that you have, Brian? No, I think we covered a lot, Josh, and um, I appreciate the uh, the conversation. I think a lot of good themes came out of this tournament, and um, you know, excited for the you know the, the the next few months and to see how things develop uh, based on based on this tournament. So really great, and thanks for thanks for talking it through. So that's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for the two of us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're enjoying the content that Josh and I discuss on the show, please rate and review the podcast so other tennis enthusiasts can find it more easily. Additionally, to be notified of new episodes, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube. You can also check us out on Instagram. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.